Well, I was outside mowing my lawn yesterday, and it started to rain. And I didn't care one bit, because I was out in my yard, and I was riding my lawnmower. Now, some of you know, last week I shared with you that I'd bought a mower from a neighbor about a year ago, and about a month ago, it stopped running, and I had no idea what was going wrong with it. And last Sunday, I got a text from Dan, and he said, hey, would you mind if I came over and took a look at the mower tomorrow? And I'd be like, would I mind? I'm like, that'd be, that'd be great. And he came over, and five minutes later, the mower was running again. And I would try to explain to you what it was, but again, I'm not a mechanical guy. And all of you who are mechanical people would be like, yeah, he's not a mechanical guy. As I tried to explain to you, there was something with the belt, and it wouldn't move, so it wouldn't allow the engine to start on. But if it happens again, just go down and give the belt a little tug, and then you're good to go. So if you know what that is, then you know what was wrong with my mower. Now you know. If you don't know what that is, that's all the best I can tell you. So good luck with that. I tried to Google it as well, and it doesn't return much. So that's what I can share with you. All I know is the mower is running again. Thank you, Dan. And it was just a reminder to me that all of us in our lives are going to reach points where we don't know what to do. We're going to reach a point where we don't know what to do. I had a broken mower. I didn't know what in the world to do with it. I made sure it had gas, and I checked to make sure that the battery was still good. And beyond that, I was clueless. I thought I was going to have to throw the thing away. As soon as I could figure out how to do that, the mower was going to be gone. And here, five minutes later, Dan was able to fix it. We're going to reach those times in our lives where there are other people who are able to come into our situations and come into our circumstances, and they can fix what's going wrong in our lives and in our circumstances. But there are going to be some times in all of our lives where no one can help. And then we must answer the question, well, what do we do? And what happens now? And what if I told you that the solution to those situations should be the same solution as the situations you can help yourself and the situations that somebody else can help you. Now, they, that may seem counterproductive, and yet, it's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us in the Bible app. It's a free resource. It's available in the app store of your choosing. Just type in Bible. There you can download the app. Once you've downloaded the app, there's a feature within the app called Events, and you can either enable your locations or enable or type in the zip code 54201 and their Lakeside Community Church will pop up. There you can follow along with us. If you're streaming from home, thanks for joining us. The verses will be available on the screen below. And if you don't want to go through and get the Bible app right now, the verses will be available on the screens on the side this morning as we wrap up our look at the New Testament book of James, starting this morning in James 5 and the first portion of verse 13, where we read these words. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Here's the reality. There are going to be times of suffering in all of our lives. Some of you are experiencing them right now. Some of you are in the midst of the hardest stretch of life you have ever encountered. And it is a time that is testing you, it is trying your patience, it's testing your faith. It is a time right now that is not fun, and quite frankly, you wish you weren't in the midst of it. And if you had the choice, you wouldn't be going through what you're going through right now. You understand suffering, you are in the midst of it, and it is all too familiar, and it is all too real, because you are there right now. And the question you have to ask is, how do you survive? In the tough times, how do you survive? And we're given the answer here. And the answer is to pray. 
The answer is to pray. And I wonder, is that the very first thing we think of when we're experiencing suffering? When we experience times of suffering, when we experience hardship, is our default response to pray? Or is our default response to try to solve it? Is our default response try to throw in some self-help model and to work through the issues? And, or do we immediately default to prayer? What is our default? As people who follow Jesus, this should be our default. That in times of suffering, we would pray. Now, there's all kinds of reasons and there's, there's all kinds of times where we don't default to this. And for some people, for a lot of people who follow Jesus, prayer is something that's incredibly difficult because it's been turned into a formula by some people. And so you question, well, am I doing it right? Am I saying the right words? Because I feel like every time I hear a prayer, it has to include these words. And if I don't include those words, does the prayer count? And then you're not really sure if the prayer even counts if you don't mix in a couple key words. And so you're like, I don't know, just forget it. Others of you, you grew up in Sunday school and you were taught that you have to fold your hands and close your eyes. And so that just feels like a weird concept to you. It feels very foreign. Sometimes you're out to dinner and you barely hear the person across the table from you, let alone to say, all right, let's stop and pray. You're like having a hard enough time having a regular conversation with them, and now you're supposed to pray. And so there's all these hang-ups that can get in your way involving prayer. And yet, this is something that is absolutely essential to those who follow Jesus. And we're going to see throughout today why that is the case. But this should be our default, especially in times of suffering that our first response isn't how I'm going to fix it and I'm going to launch this plan and I'm going to do A and then I'm going to do B and then I'm going to do C and that's going to give me a result. No. The first step, we're told, in times of suffering is to pray. So today, we're going to see a lot of different scenarios and a lot of different situations where we should pray. This is just the first. And rather than just talk about prayer, we're going to build in some times to actually do that. You don't have to pray out loud. You don't have to fold your hands. You don't have to close your eyes. But in the quietness of this room right now, just between you and God, then if you're in the midst of a time right now that's incredibly difficult, if you're in the midst of suffering right now, then just talk to God about that season. Just cry out to God about what you're currently experiencing. If you're not going through a season of suffering right now, you know somebody who is. So pray for them and their circumstances and their situations. And if you're like, I don't know anybody who's suffering, then you need to get out more and you need to talk to people <laughs> because it's all around you, literally all around you. And if you're not suffering now, it's still important that you resolve how you will respond when you do suffer because your time is coming. Every one of us suffers. Every one of us goes through hard times. It's a result of living in a fallen world. It's a result of living in the world in which we live. Every single one of us will experience hard times. And when we do, the very first step to that needs to be that we pray about it. And so in the quietness of this room right now, let's do just that. God, we ask you to help those suffering. Amen. And then he goes on to finish verse 13. He says, is anyone cheerful? Is anyone cheerful? Let them sing praise. 
Just as there are going to be hard times in life, there's going to be good times. And when those good times come, enjoy them, celebrate them. When they're present in your life, rejoice. Some of you feel like you can't do that. Some of you feel like if you celebrate the good times, you're doing something wrong. You're going to jinx it somehow. You're like, oh, I can't get too excited. No, when life's good, celebrate, embrace it, be happy, and go through life that way. It's what he says. Is anyone cheerful? Let them sing praise. Now, sing praise. Don't make this weird or difficult. All right, don't make this weird or difficult. This isn't an invitation or even a command that you walk through the streets living your life as, in your, some, as, in your, as if you're in some musical where you just are walking down the street and randomly burst into song and everyone around you like, what's going on with you? Because people don't do that. I know they do in musicals, but in the real world, people don't just start singing at the top of their lungs because they're having a good day. And if they do, the rest of us avoid them. That's just what we do, right? It's not natural. It's not normal. And you might read this and you might think to yourself, oh, great, the Bible's calling me to be a freak. It's saying if I'm experiencing good times, then I've got to walk around screaming a song at the top of my lungs. That's not what it's talking about. But this is something that's just understood. There's all kinds of songs that celebrate the fact that people are having a good day. Whatever kind of genre of music you like, minus country, because you can't get excited about anything in country music other than getting wasted. But anything other than that, like the girl's gone, the dog died, like I lost my job, I miss my mom. Like, you know, that's there's your, there's your country playlist. I just summed it up for you. Let's go get wasted. Okay, great. There's country music. Anything, any other, any other kind of music, there are songs that celebrate just that life is good and you should enjoy it and, and celebrate. And so the thought, it's the thought process behind that feeling. It's not saying you must go out and sing at the top of your lungs while you walk down the street, but enjoy the good times. Enjoy the blessings as you experience them. When times are good, rejoice and be excited. Take happiness, embrace it, and direct the joy that you have to the giver of the good. And we're reminded in Scripture that every good thing, every good and perfect thing comes from God. And so everything that you can celebrate in your life is a gift from God. Either He's directly given it to you, or He's given you the energy, and He's given you the power enabled to accomplish it. And so let's just make sure that as people who go through good times as well, that we celebrate those good times. And that's what we're going to do right now. And if life is really difficult for you right now, I really want to challenge you. Even in the midst of that difficulty, this becomes all the more important to find and celebrate the good things that God continues to do in your life and in your circumstances. And there may be times where you scratch your head and say, I can't find anything. And I just want to remind you, today's a gift. Today is a gift. This moment is a gift from God that he has given us. It is a gift, and he's, he's enabled us to live another day. So there is always something that we can celebrate. And right now, that's what we're going to do, is we're just going to quietly just shout out to God from our hearts, thanks for what he's enabled us to do or something he's done, the circumstances we find ourselves in. Thank you, God, for the goodness that you've given us and your wonderful gifts. Verse 14 goes on to say this, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now there's some disagreement 
here what this is, what this is actually talking about, this, this anointing somebody with oil. Some people think this is literally something you should do, anoint their head with oil, that it's a spiritual, it's a spiritual act. Going back to the Old Testament where the prophets would anoint the kings, that there is significance in the spiritual act of taking physical oil and rubbing it on somebody's head, and that's a spiritual practice. Other people think it's more metaphoric in nature. That anointing is more, is more just a figure of speech, similar to how we would say shower someone with praise. You literally don't sit outside the shower and yell out how great they are. That's just creepy. Uh, some, people, some people think the oil here refers to medicinal purposes. Remember at the time James was written, there weren't the medical advancements that we have today. So antibiotics and vaccines and all those sorts of things didn't exist at the time. And so there were a lot of different oils that were used in healing process. And so some people think it's, it's purely medicinal in that feature. And to this day, people use oils and, as medic, for medicinal reasons. Some of you have a little thing at home that lights up with different LED covers and play colors and plays some soft music and shoots essential oils out into the atmosphere of your rooms. And, and so oils are used to this day. And there's, there's disagreement whether this is a spiritual thing where you literally take the oil and pour it on their head, whether this was a metaphoric thing or whether this was purely a medicinal thing where the oils were, would be used for the actual healing properties. And yet, regardless of the principle of what the oil's referring to here, and quite frankly, I'm fine with any of the three that you want to you wanna hold on to. If you believe this is a spiritual practice and you get sick and you bring some oil to us and you ask us to pray for you and anoint your head, we're fine with that. If it's more metaphoric, we're good with that. If, if it's more medicinal, I mean, we certainly celebrate all the medicinal advancements that God has enabled us to discover, and we know ultimately God is the one who does the healing, and yet frequently, especially in this day and age, He uses doctors and nurses um, in order to bring about that healing. So we would never encourage anybody who's sick to not go to the doctor or not get thoroughly checked out. We would celebrate that fact with them. So regardless of where you are and how you view this, the end result is still what? That we pray for each other, and we pray for God to heal. Now, this, if we're not careful, is what every church prayer blast becomes, right? Every church prayer blast that you've ever seen is so-and-so has surgery, so-and-so's mother-in-law is sick, so-and-so doesn't feel well, and, and it just becomes a litany of just depressing medical ailment after medical ailment, and if you'll notice, and I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for people and what's going on with them physically. We should. In fact, we're told here that we need to. And yet, do you notice, this is the third thing that James addresses that the church should be praying for. So it's not just that the prayer blast should be a list of here's every medical condition that's impacting everybody in the church, but the church should also be praying for people in their suffering, the situations that they find themselves going through. The church should also be rejoicing with people. When they find themselves in good times, they should be praising God that other people are experiencing good times as well. Yes, we pray for what's going on in terms of your medical condition. Yes, we pray for you when you have an upcoming surgery. But we've been called to pray about so much more than just what's going on in terms of illness and in terms of sickness. And if we're not careful, this is what every prayer blast becomes. And most people just tune it out because, frankly, we don't know your mother-in-law and we sure 
sure hope the surgery goes well, but we don't have much, like, we love you and we care about you, but we're never going to really meet your mother-in-law, and it's, we can't put a face with a name, and we've been called to be so much more than that. Yes, we want to pray for your ailments. Yes, we want to pray for what you're experiencing, and when there are surgeries, and you find yourself sick, that is important, and we do want to pray, but it can't be limited to just that. It's got to be so much more than that. That's how it's been designed by God. And so we just need to safeguard that as a church and make sure that we're being vulnerable and authentic with people and just saying, hey, yeah, you can pray for me when I have surgery coming up, but you can also pray for me because I'm really struggling with this. It's hard being a parent. It's hard going to school. It's hard at my work. It's hard in my marriage right now. We want to pray about those things with and for you. And on the flip side, we want to rejoice with you when you get the promotion, when you graduate, when you find yourself in a promising new relationship. We want to rejoice in all of those circumstances and all of those situations with you. When you retire, we want to celebrate that with you. And so we can't just be limited to what's coming up with your medical history, and yet it's still very important for us to pray about that as well. So I'm not trying in any way to diminish the importance of praying about the physical ailments and things that you encounter, but I am saying we must make sure that the prayers go so much more beyond that as well, because this is the third thing we get to on the list. This isn't the only thing on the list. And so right now, if you know somebody who's sick, maybe you've got a procedure coming up, maybe there's some testing that that you need to undergo. Maybe there's some results you're waiting on. Maybe it's a surgery that's coming up. Maybe it's a friend or a family member, somebody, a loved one, whatever the case may be. I invite you right now in the quietness of this moment just to lift up to God somebody who's sick and to pray for them. We ask you, God, to heal them. Amen. Verse 15 goes on to say this, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The reality is this: sin can affect the whole essence of us, including our physical well-being. We see this all the time. We see the end results of gluttony and how gluttony can have an impact on the physical well-being of people. We see, we see the results of sexually transmitted diseases. Every time somebody steps outside of God's original design for marriage, they open themselves up to all kinds of things. We see this in people's inability to sleep, etc. There are a number of situations and scenarios that we see where sin can impact our physical beings as well. And what's the, what's the takeaway? What's the point? That there would be prayer here that reconnects us with the heart of God. Because while there are physical effects and while there are emotional effects, psychological effects, the greatest effect of sin is that it alienates us from God. 
Every time there is sin in our lives, what we will do is we will compartmentalize God and we'll keep God over here off to the side in some compartment because we don't want God's presence in every portion of our lives. We want to continue to do what we want to do, knowing that it isn't what God wants for us to do. And we keep God over there because there's an alienation within us of the intimacy that we should have with God because we know we're rebelling against him. And what what does the prayer of confession do? The prayer of confession reconnects us with the heart of God. It helps us see sin in the same way that God sees sin. It helps us see our actions in the same way that God sees our actions. And it restores that relationship where there's friction because we've rebelled against God. So right now, I'm just going to invite you in the quietness of this moment, in the quietness of your heart, to just confess those things that you're carrying those struggles that are seemingly winning day after day after day, the parts of you that you wouldn't want anybody else to know about but are there, to just honestly confess those things to God right now between you and Him and to hand those things over to God and ask Him to help you see those things in the same way that He does. Thank you, God, for forgiving us and restoring us for your mercy and grace. Verse 16 goes on to say this, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Prayers have power. They have incredible power. And that's why the enemy wants to make it so difficult for us to pray. It's why he wants to get in our heads and be like, oh, but you got to fold your hands, you got to close your eyes, you got to recite it this way, or it doesn't count, or God doesn't hear. And he forms all these questions in our minds to the point where we're like, ah, and we just stop. And we've made prayer more difficult than it was ever intended to be. When Jesus modeled prayer for the disciples, he made it personal, and he took away all of the, he took away all of the grandstanding. He just made it an honest conversation between him and God the Father. And that's what God desires from us. Not that we have to work in the right words, not that we have to do it at a certain time, in a certain posture, in a certain way, but it can just be an authentic conversation, an authentic dialogue where we cry out to the creator of the universe and our creator and knowing that he not only hears our prayers, but he loves us enough to answer them as well. Prayers have power. And so I want to encourage you right now to ask God for something that you need his power to achieve. Because sometimes what we're guilty of is we're guilty of asking God for things, but we're, we're guilty of only asking God for the things that we can accomplish in our own strength. We're guilty of asking God for things that we could really do by ourselves and we don't really need God to do. And I'm not saying those things aren't important to pray about. We should definitely pray about those things as well. But we should be praying sometimes for things that would just blow our minds and things that we would step back and say, this has to be God because there is no way. There's no way I could accomplish that. And those are the prayers that God wants us to pray as well. 
Not just that we pray things that we can easily accomplish. And again, God cares about everything, so even those things are important to pray about. But we should be praying about things that would just blow our minds and things that we cannot explain and ask God to just work in really big ways. And sometimes God's going to answer that prayer no, and we aren't going to understand why. Other times we'll look back, and years later we'll look back and we'll see, I wasn't ready, or I, I, I wouldn't have been able to handle that, or whatever the case may be. Sometimes it just goes contrary to what God's plan is, and we don't see that at the time because we don't get all the details of God's plans. So we'll never know that. And yet, I just want to encourage you and challenge you. Pray something really big right now. Pray something really big and ask God just to accomplish something that would blow your mind. And you would have to laugh and point and say, that was totally God, because I couldn't do it. God, we pray that you'd show up and just blow our minds with what you do for your glory. James goes on in verse 17, he writes, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. You know, sometimes we convince ourselves God can accomplish really big things, but through those kind of people. And we build people up in our minds like it's because they're extraordinary that God could use them. It's because they had all of these things that I don't have that God could do something really cool through them. And yet what we see throughout Scripture and even what we're told in the New Testament about the disciples and the apostles was that they were unschooled, ordinary people. They were unschooled, ordinary people. There's a reason that when talking about Elijah, James says, with a nature like ours. The point is not that Elijah was some magnificent human being. The point is that an extraordinary God can do the extraordinary through the incredibly ordinary. And that's the message throughout Scripture. And James takes it back to Elijah, where he's saying, remember what God can do through someone just like you and me. The year was around 863 B.C. First Kings 17 tells us this, that Elijah went to King Ahab and said, in the name of God, it won't rain until I say it will. There won't even be dew. So the prophet of God went to the king and said, in the name of God, you will not have any rain until I say it will rain. And the drought will be so severe that there will not even be dew upon the grass. So God tells Elijah, you should go hide. Like, <laughs> Elijah just went and told the king this. God shows up like, go hide. And so he does. Elijah hides, and he goes near a creek. And ravens twice a day would deliver him bread and food, which I really hope Elijah was a Boy Scout and had a raging fire going, because when you think of how disgusting that bread and food had to be after being delivered by ravens, it just, I'm a little bit of a germaphobe, like not an ultra germaphobe, but enough to be sanitary, and there's nothing sanitary about this. Like, it just makes me shiver a little bit. So I really hope, really hope Elijah was really good at starting the fire. But he's, he's out. He's in hiding. 
Ravens are bringing him food. He is near a creek. He's drinking from the creek. And all of a sudden, the creek dries up. Because again, it's a drought. There's no rain. A drought to the point that there isn't going to be any dew. And so God tells Elijah to go to another town. Elijah goes to another town, and he meets, he meets a widow there. A widow who has a son. She's incredibly poor. And not only is she incredibly poor, but there's a drought, which has led to a massive famine. And in meeting Elijah, she says, I'm going to prepare our last meal. We're going to eat it. And then we will starve to death. And Elijah asks her after hearing this for a piece of bread. She's like, I don't have any bread. And Elijah says, if you will make me a piece of bread and bring it to me, God will provide for you. You will never run out of flour and oil. And the woman made the piece of bread. She brought it to Elijah. And God was true to his word. For the rest of her life, she would never run out of oil or flour. Three years later, 1 Kings 18 now, tells us that Elijah goes back to talk to King Ahab. Remember, it hasn't rained for three years. King Ahab happens to be looking for Elijah to kill him. And Elijah runs into Obadiah, who is a servant of King Ahab, but more importantly, a servant of God. Elijah tells Obadiah, I want to meet with King Ahab. And Obadiah tells Elijah, no, you don't. And Elijah says, no, really, I want to meet with King Ahab. And Obadiah says, King Ahab will kill you. And Elijah says, I serve God. And it's what God has called me to do. And then, at the end of 1 Kings 18, we see this scene that a lot of us who grew up in the church were taught in Sunday school. And it was one of our favorite stories. That Elijah, as King Ahab, set up this demonstration between Elijah and all the prophets of Baal, the false god that the people were worshiping. And the prophets of Baal went out around their altar, and they cried out for Baal, their false god, to bring down fire from heaven. And their cries didn't work. So Elijah sat by and encouraged them all the more to yell louder. Maybe their gods were asleep. And so they started screaming louder. They started self-mutilating themselves, all in an appeal for their gods to act. And then Elijah prayed to God, and God sent fire down, burning up the altar. That's where the story in Sunday school ended, but the story doesn't end there. Elijah has the 450 prophets of Baal gathered together, and he goes out and he slaughters them. And if they would have taught me that in Sunday school, I'd have liked going to church more as a kid, but they never brought up that part. It just story ended when the fire came down. Never mind the fact Elijah went out and just slaughtered 450 people. He slaughters them. And then James picks up the story from there in James 5, 18. And then Elijah prayed again. And heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. 
It wasn't the power of Elijah that stopped the rain. It wasn't the power of Elijah that filled a jar with oil and flour. It wasn't the power of Elijah that sent down fire. It wasn't the power of Elijah that brought down rain. And it isn't the power of you. It isn't the power of Elijah and it isn't the power of me. It's the power of God. Using ordinary people from obscure places that other people would look at and say there's nothing special about them through whom God does the extraordinary time and again in Scripture. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Here as James concludes his book, we have a call for genuine, for genuine, real, saving faith. There are those who outwardly seem to respond, who proclaim that they follow Jesus, and yet there's never a full transformation of their heart. And the picture that we're given from Scripture is that that's not real faith. Earlier on in James, we tackled this when we saw that faith without works is dead because it isn't real faith at all. That real, genuine, saving faith is always, always described by transformation of the heart and by acts, which are the fruit that show it was real. My boys are obsessed with Bay Beach right now especially my youngest. It's the first year he's tall enough to ride the Zip and Pippin. He's keeping a running total. He's ridden it 10 times this year. It's, it's some days all he talks about. He's in love with it, and he's so excited that he's tall enough to ride the Zip and Pippin. So I was taking my boys to Bay Beach one day. Brooke had to run and, and go, to a, go pick up a couple things. She dropped us off at the park, and the first ride we were going to ride was the Zip and Pippin. We get in line, and there weren't a lot of people there. So they're like, Dad, let's just duck under the rails so we don't have to walk through all of these and we can, we can get closer in line. We wouldn't be cutting anybody. I'm like, all right. And I watched the two boys duck under the rails and then I ducked under the rails. And as I got up, I heard the rip. And I was looking. I had a pair of cargo shorts on that my wife absolutely hates, not necessarily because they're cargo shorts, but because I got them in 2009. And I convinced her I could wear them because it's the ticket system at Bay Beach, so I could put all the tickets in the different pockets, and it'd be great. And I started checking the pockets. There was no rip. It was right in the crotch. Like, there's no way. No way to hide it. So I duck down, and I pull my shirt down, and I get out my phone, because again, my wife has the car. She is 10 to 15 minutes away from Bay Beach. I'm in line with the kids. I call her 
as the phone is ringing, my oldest points at the hole and starts laughing. Says, Dad has a hole in his pants at the top of his lungs. I'm like, stop it, stop it. I'm on the phone, my wife, I'm like, I need you to come get me. She's like, what's going on? I'm like, I just need you to come get me. She's like, why? You just got there. I'm like, I have a hole in my crotch. I need you to come get me. She's like, excuse me? I'm like, just come get me. Shouldn't have said that because now my son's pointing and saying, he has a hole in his crotch on the top of his, I'm hitting his hand. I'm like, stop it. There's nothing I could do. I couldn't get out of there. I needed cover. And I needed someone to rescue me. I couldn't solve it. I was in a problem. The reality is in life, there are going to be times where you need cover. There are going to be times when you have a problem and you can't solve it. And that's the message of the gospel, that all of us have a problem that we can't solve. It's the problem of sin, that all of us need cover, and we can't get that cover because that covers perfection. But Jesus was that cover for us. And the message of the church is not to run away from those who make mistakes. The message of the church is not to run from those in the midst of their mess and in the midst of the mistake. The call of the church is that we run to the mess and we run to the mistake and we proclaim the hope of Jesus and we say, while you are in the midst of your mess and you are in the midst of your mistake, God still loves you and He will cover you. And He will fix your mess. That's what God has called us to be. That we are a community of people who are together when we suffer, who celebrate when life is good, who walk together through all the uncertainties of surgeries and doctor's visits. We have that person we can go to and say, I'm really struggling in this area. I need your help. And who together ask God to act in really big ways. Because together is always better than alone. Because that's how God's designed this community. That we need each other. And we run to the messes. And to the mistakes. And say, God still loves you. And there is hope for you. That's available through Jesus. God, I pray that we would be the community you've called us to be. That we'd help those in the midst of their suffering to not walk through it alone we would pray with them that we would celebrate with those who celebrate and that they wouldn't have to celebrate alone but we would celebrate right alongside of them and in the moments of uncertainty and doubt and as the end seems near as the health issues continue to pile up that we would be right there praying alongside them God, that in the moments of weakness, no one would feel like they're isolated or alone. God, that we would see you work 
Not because we're extraordinary, but just the opposite. Because you are an extraordinary God who works through the ordinary. And God, for everybody who's in the midst of a mess, and a mistake, that they would be introduced to real, genuine, saving faith through a relationship with your son, Jesus. It's in his name we do pray. Amen.